The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now let's get into the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to welcome the legendary singer-songwriter, Mr. John B. Sebastian. Thanks so much for doing this. Well, thank you for your interest. I think most stories are best from the beginning, but this is a question I've been asking lately. It's got some interesting answers. Who is John B. Sebastian? A guitar player. What was life like growing up? Well, I grew up in Greenwich Village, so I had uh, this sort of, it was a perfect point of departure for what was going to become this 60s uh, musical world. And I was sort of the youngest um, of a crowd because I was a harmonica player, often was getting work with more established folk and generally bluesy kind of folk performers of that era. And so I was sort of the youngest in a uh, of a very interesting scene at that time, and it kind of gave me a nice jumping off point for the spoonful and what was to all follow the next generation of folk blues country related music and what kind of music were you listening to growing up i was exposed to a pretty broad spectrum my father was a classical musician so i was going to uh, concerts uh, hearing him play with orchestras my mother was in radio so i was hearing sort of big band and pop music of the era on the radio and as i was growing up i began to have because i lived right across from washington square park i i began to have this sort of petri dish of folk music on sundays which was this hoot nanny that happened in the park every sunday can you remember the first song that you ever wrote yeah i think it was shepherds call her iphigenia that's with a ph they needed at my prep school a song to fit in a Shakespeare play that had to sound vaguely English folk ballady, and I just said, "Okay, wait, I think I can do that." So that goes uh, to, uh, to Richard Rogers, or one of the, our great songwriters, who was asked, "What what comes first, the music or the lyrics?" And his answer was, first comes the phone call." Because you have to sometimes be asked to do something to produce a, a piece of work. Tell us a little bit about this band that was around called the Even Dozen Jug Band. It started out kind of at the stimulus 
of a wonderful producer by the name of Paul Rothschild, who would later produce The Doors and Janice and just about everybody on Elektra Records for a, a, a one, five, six-year period, who had noticed that the coolest thing on the folk scene at that moment was the Jim Queskin Jug Band. He sort of pointed us towards this type of music and said, you know, you guys are, you could just we could make a record you know we could have some fun here and that's that's really how it was not only the start of the band but that was the start of my you know that's the first time i earned a session fee well what about the album you did with billy fair you may have scooped the even dozen jug band billy fair was before i think the before even the, dozen but it was unpaid you know it might have been a much more informal kind of an arrangement because uh, you got to remember that in, in that neighborhood, we were all commies at that time. I got you. <laughs> going forward from there, the, the Love and Spoonful, what was going through your mind when that was forming and what was it that you had in mind? Well, I think what we had in mind was really what happened. Uh, it just got misnamed. Uh, what we were interested in doing was being in a band that could include a tune by Elmore James and uh, could still have uh, a uh, kind of uh, like a weeping guitar imitation of Floyd Kramer. Uh, I guess the combo for us was more country and blues. But instead, we got called folk rock. Ooh, thanks, guys. <laughs> Love that name. Well, what about Woodstock? What was it like playing there? Uh, that was uh, absolutely uh, shattering. That was an amazing event. And really, rather than direct the, you know, too much of the energy towards me, really, that show was about the audience and not about the performers. And the performers, I think, responded by not playing very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've read some really interesting stories. You've worked with a lot of great artists. I mean, like Fred Neal, wow, uh, Judy Collins, Bob Dylan, and then I think it was a not an uncredited, but you were using a pseudonym for The Doors. Yeah, yeah. Has there been anyone that you've worked with that you were especially blown away to work with? Oh, yeah. I mean, just starting with your little list there, mm -hmm. Timmy Harden, Freddie Neal. When I first started playing with Freddie, I did not know about Fred Neal. I was introduced to Fred Neal as I was playing the first few tunes with him uh, and just reacting to this spectacular voice and uh, how all of a sudden he had turned this little folk club into like an Elvis concert. The, the, the women were, were like ready to jump over the tables. It was, it was spectacular. As recently as the late 80s, uh, I was playing routinely with Johnny Johnson, a, the, a great pianist on so many of those Chuck Berry classics. And in fact, uh, the co-composer of some of those things, I, I would think by a modern definition. 
In fact, uh, I'm coming up on a, a gig with Hubert Sumlin uh, that uh, is just something that I adore doing. Playing with Yank Racial in the 90s was an astonishing thing. This is a wonderful blues mandolinist who began his career in the jug band era. So I never thought I'd meet a real jug bander, but I did. So I was uh, reading something that somebody who had covered one of your songs said, and he said that sometimes when you have a certain song that becomes famous, some artists start to kind of resent the song. And there are some songs that you've had that have become extremely famous and well-loved, like Do You Believe in Magic? How do you feel about a song like that? Because, I mean, it was number 216 on the Rolling Stones list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Do you ever get tired of playing it? No. No. It is my great privilege to have gotten that little thunderbolt. And uh, so I will happily play that until they're ready to pack me on ice. Well, how did that song come to be? It came to be in a little club called the Night Owl Cafe where, you know, a previously kind of a folk crowd was suddenly changing into the beginnings of a rock and roll crowd. And Zali and I noticed a young girl dancing in the back of the room. Now, this was a room that did not by New York cabaret law, allow dancing. So it wasn't something that happened frequently. In fact, when we first started playing this club, the thing that was happening in the audience was chess playing. So you can imagine, I mean, this was, this was a challenging audience. And to see, finally, a gal that had come from Brooklyn or the Bronx or Queens somewhere and was was just dancing our way in the back of the room. That That's really what that song is all about. Well, Mr. Sebastian, do you, in fact, believe in magic? Uh, you know, I was taught to believe in magic. I, I in fact, uh, inherited a great magician's trunk when I was very young. And I think that uh, Paul Hartman, who went on to be a great television actor, in things like uh, Mayberry RFD, wonderful hang jowl guy by that time, but I had known him since I was five, so he was quite youthful when I began my friendship with him. But uh, at the end of his magic career, he gave me his trunk. So, yes, in the most literal way, I do. First of all, it's on a great album, but it was a song you wrote. The album I'm talking about was from Art Garfunkel, and it was his cover of Daydream. I love his version of that song. I have to tell you, I do too. I think it's one of the best, maybe the best covers ever. Well, first of all, what a cast. I mean, he's got Warren Bernhardt on piano. He's got me playing the original part on the guitar. I think true to form, there may not have been a bass. I don't know whether they followed it that closely. But Steve Gadd on drums was just so great. What a great addition. And is it true that you wrote that song in imitations of a Supreme song? It's true. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. There's another song I wanted to talk about. Uh, it was covered by the Everly Brothers. It was covered by Tom Petty. It's a chapter 
It's a title of a chapter in a book coming out. And uh, the song is Stories We Could Tell. How did you get inspired to write that one? I was in Nashville on a two- or three-week songwriting mission. And I wasn't having much success. I was living in a hotel with a room where you had a choice of listening to the television or turning on the air conditioning. Because if you did both, you really couldn't hear the television. At a certain point, this idea came to me because I had been walking around. I had seen some of these famous guitars in the Country Music Hall of Fame, so that I'm afraid some of which don't even exist anymore. Um, I had uh, also had other experiences in my past, like the experience with Freddie Neal, uh, of uh, this genius who would... And, and Timmy Harden, too, like uh, this genius guy who would suddenly come in and, and be shattered by one substance or another. And and uh, so that was part of that verse about the museum, that guitar, uh, the scratches on the face told of all the times he fell, singing all the stories he could tell. So, yeah. Great song. Thanks. Well, tell us about the latest record. All the listeners out there need to check it out. It's called Satisfied. Satisfied was a lot of fun to make, I can tell you. Uh, David Grisman is a wonderful ally, and I I really savor my live shows with him when we we can do that. Uh, And uh, David also has a technique of recording that is very 60s. Basically, he turns on a tape recorder and you record, and then after it's done, you're done. There's no mixing because the mixing has been done by a very skilled acoustic engineer, Dave Dennison, who, and uh, the first time that I came for a playback and I went back into the room, the, the control room, and I said, gee, I think uh, I think we need a little bit more guitar. And uh, Dave Dennison, the engineer, smiles up at me and says, play louder. <laughs> so that was uh, part of my education. Uh, I think uh, a really great step, a great way to do this project with David. Uh, the tunes came from all over the board. Some of them were folk songs, John Hurt, old classics, Everly Brothers, B-sides, you know, we, we, we were just going all over the place and, in fact, have already begun going all over the place again for another album. I, we just had our first couple of sessions. If you could put it into words, what is it you like about music? Music uh, presents the wonderful opportunity to scratch an itch that I think musicians have. And that itch is playing. And that opportunity to play combined with the opportunity to travel is, I think, a great incentive and has been my incentive. I think my father, who was a great classical musician, also kind of lived by the credo because he was a very well-traveled musician, did not keep it to, you know, strict classical venues. He'd end up playing in a town square, which was basically 
dirt beaten down by bare feet. And he'd set up uh, his accompanist with a little electric piano, and they would do concerts, you know. I mean, they they were in Asia and Africa and a lot of places that uh, not that many musicians were traveling to, uh, American musicians in that day. I have two final questions. The first one, what is your all-time favorite meal? It was an abruzzese-flavored uh, chicken made by the mother of Tom Vinci, who is uh, one of our great string builders, uh, string machine builders, actually. His father invented the string uh, extruding machine uh, as a an afterthought after he'd invented a pasta-making machine, as it's all the same. It's the same stuff. So uh, I would very often end up at his uh, house and... And Mrs. Vinci made this chicken that had some sweet-sour combination, a little balsamic vinegar that gave it this quality, and it had obviously been marinating, and it took a while to do, and it was an astonishing meal. And uh, by 1968, or whenever that was, I, I had already had that meal. Sounds good. It was good. Well, my last question. We get people listening to this show from all over the globe. What would you like to say to all the people listening? I'd like to say thank you because all of you have given me permission to do this thing that at 18 looked like an impossible dream uh, and to continue doing it uh, into my 60s and hopefully beyond. Mr. Sebastian, it has been a pleasure to do this interview. Thank you. Bapa tuli pipapadira, di pampiri bura petika nasa jipa kila kanatsa gile bando gile tingi jiga mangeka peti sigele ya hunga ayenge sege baki daga mo i daga mo gu agacha agada inga roke tenga lenga po akika kano oh goodbye.